Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. In 2019, my next guest suffered an unexpected accident that would lead her on an unexpected path. Christina Libby was enjoying a day of kite surfing when a tragic fall left her with a traumatic brain injury. From that day on, her brain as she knew it would never be the same. Simple things like sunlight, sounds, even dinner with friends became intolerable. Today, Christina shares her story to recovery and how a talent she never knew she had ended up being that which healed her. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Christina, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. So I mentioned in the introduction you were kite surfing, and that's an enjoyable summer activity. And I don't think you woke up expecting what was going to happen, but would you mind sharing with us exactly what happened on that day? Yeah, sure. So I went kite surfing on the 29th of July. I've been basically spent all winter kite surfing at different places. I got super, super into it. And just like, to me, kite surfing is this really beautiful experience. I talk about it like dancing with the wind. It feels really kind of like primal and organic to me. And unlike anything else in the world. And so I was so excited. And I was learning to fly a big, really big kite, a 17 meter kite, which I normally fly one that's nine meters. So it's doubly as big. And I got an instructor and I was like, I'm going to do this the right way. And then my instructor asked me to do something. And I was just like, that doesn't feel right. I shouldn't do that. But then I did it anyway. And I got picked up and I got was so nervous because the kite was so big. I got carried, um, over the beach and then into the sand dunes in Brooklyn, right next to the Belt Parkway. And I then thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to come down in the middle of the highway. I will die. And so I released my kite and then I fell to the ground from about a 10 or 12 feet directly into my head. So when I released the kite, I sort of flipped and then um, and fell on my head and then was dragged by the kite for a little while and then sort of got up and out of it. And then I went back and I kite surfed for another sort of hour and a half with a really horrific headache because I was like, well, I paid for my lesson, so I want to get the most out of it. And I was so concussed that I I really was unable to process the fact that I was hurt. Like I just thought like, oh, I bumped my head. And so I didn't go to the hospital that evening. And that was Saturday. And then I waited all day Sunday. And then I woke up on Monday morning at 4 a.m., I woke myself up out of my sleep because I was sobbing. And I was like, oh, I think something's really wrong with me. And I went to the walk-in clinic and they were just like, oh my gosh, go to the emergency room now. And so I went to the emergency room and then have now going on 10 months of having a traumatic brain injury. Wow. 
First, thank you for sharing that story. Reliving that and talking about it, I'm sure it brings up some trauma. So thank you. I know in my research, I was, I was discovering that, and oddly, it only goes back to 2014, but nearly 3 million people a year suffer from a traumatic brain injury. And a lot don't realize it. So I can imagine that you, you know, you were able to go in and proactively do something, you know, and seek help. But is there really any help? Yeah, that's been the most fascinating thing. So no one knows what to do, right? So each traumatic brain injury happens in a really different way, right? Like uh, people who have injuries from last year, I don't even know what percentage of them have them from kite surfing. I imagine it's very, very small. And then those injuries have all happened in very different ways, right? So you go to the doctor and it's like, I have these problems. I can't stand sunlight or sound, or I developed weird skills. Like I could memorize very long strains of numbers. And that was something that I had not previously had, right? I sort of developed these, these skills, but then my like facility language was really horrible. I couldn't memorize and still really struggle to memorize any combination of things. Whereas before, like as a kid, I used to act in like regional theater camp. And so memorization was something that was always, I was very skilled at. And the doctors, they don't know. So you go in and and basically their prognosis is that you just need to rest, but no one tells you what rest looks like. It's not just being in a cold, dark room. And then they don't tell you things like for me, it was really impactful. I basically ate like gluten-free, salt-free, dairy-free diet. That was incredibly helpful. And then I take a mix of magnesium and B12 pills. And then um, I spend a lot of time alone, like a huge amount of time alone, sort of quietly doing things. But I really had to learn how to live in a different way. And then a lot of how to come to terms with who I am and start to really change my life to be, if you spend a lot of time alone and that's your only company, you better really learn to like yourself because you spend a lot of time with yourself. Right. And so for me, there was a lot of learning about who I am and what's important and a massive amount of emotional as well as sort of artistic and creative growth that, that came out of the incident. I sort of diverged from your question to say, the doctors don't know anything. They gave me poor advice and they still are just like, rest, it will get better. That's sort of concussion advice 101. I learned to change my diet and take these vitamins and spend time alone. And then that led to a lot of emotional and creative recovery. Well, let's get to that good part because I I think that from all of our stories, every single one of us have I don't want to say ups and downs, but you know, our chapters of which we go through our own trauma and our own experience and our, our learning. We all have that. And as you were going through this, you were led down an unexpected path to your healing and on a whim walked into an art store and it kind of forever changed your life and brought on healing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. The interesting thing about my concussion is I become incredibly intuitive at a level that I think I wasn't before, or maybe much more inclined to sort of embrace my intuition and believe in it, like really believe it's there. And so two weeks in, I had these crushing, oh, I still have these horrible headaches, but they were crushing then. It was just exhausting. I thought, 
I have to go to an art store. And it was very weird because I, I don't think I've painted anything or really been like, a, I'm not a crafty person, right? I don't spend time at the art store. And so I went in and I bought this giant canvas, like four feet by four feet and all of these paints and brushes. And my mom was with me and she was just like, okay, well, seems like a lot of money, Christina. And I was just like, I don't think I really need this mom. And she went and got for me one thing that I will never forget. She got me a really large paintbrush. And I remember thinking like, that paintbrush is so huge. What do you do with a paintbrush that huge? And that paintbrush has sort of become the central part of painting for me. So it's this huge canvas. And I just like, was like, I'm just going to start painting. It was oil paints. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to Google how to oil paint because I was like, do I mix things with it? Like, what, what do I need? Do I need to prime a canvas? I don't know. And it really from the first maybe two or three minutes into painting, my headache stopped. And it was this really profound moment of just being like, having massive relief. I mean, I think anyone who has a chronic injury and then you have like an hour of pain-free time, all of a sudden it feels like the most wonderful gift you've ever been given in your life. And, and I really felt like that where I started to paint and I basically couldn't stop. And so I painted someplace between three and five hours a day, nearly every single day for six months, probably. So much so that I like rented a really large studio here in East Williamsburg and just bought more giant canvases, like six by six foot canvases. And I just sort of painted whatever was in my mind. And that act of creative expression of, was, I talk about it like I'm making imaginary worlds for people. Like that's what my paintings feel like to me. It's these worlds that are like very much steeped in reality in some sort of image in my mind, but they're, they're imagined to me, right? Like they're never picture perfect photograph quality realism. Like it's just not like that. And I think what my brain was searching for were these escape moments, right? So like in these paintings, I really had this ability to just step into a different world to be pain-free to sort of like reconnect with memories or ideas or people in my life and that it was so profoundly emotional for me my mom said something in the early days of concussion where she said you've never really been someone to express your emotions and I feel like right now you're finally being able to do that and I think that to me Painting was a lot about that of sort of having a place to put those emotions and learn to integrate with them. And the interesting thing about painting for me is that I will probably paint the same canvas like 50 times with images that are constantly changing until I settle on something that the painting tells me is finished, right? And that sort of exploration of a painting feels a lot like exploration of emotion or exploration of an idea or even a bit like the relationship you have with something that it's, it's not really complete until it tells you it's complete. Right. And so it's, it's always this really interesting exploration. And that is, I would say that the thing that was most impactful in, in moving through this moment of trauma was just the physical act of painting, but also the 
mental, not like intellectual act of painting, but like the mental act of, of creating something from your imagination. Almost uh, meditative, I can imagine, right? Yeah. People really talk about like flow state. So I'm terrible at yoga. I'm, I'm awful. Like flow state in yoga, I never seem to be able to figure that one out. But painting for me is deeply, deeply meditative. And it is one of the few moments in my life where like all the ideas stop because it is focused on the expression of a single idea. Like even if I don't know what that idea is, I know that something's coming out of that. Like I I made a piece in the early days of COVID and I have a friend who helps me name them. Who I just He's got a great mind. And so I'm always like, what do you think the name should be? And I sent him this painting and he was just like, that painting looks just like total frayed edges, right? And I was like, oh, oh, even though I think that this doesn't come through because I'm painting these landscape paintings, other people are able to see that meditation on a feeling or a response in that art. I'm sure you're familiar with Oliver Sacks and his, yes. yeah. And so he did a lot of work with this on music is healing brain injuries or, or conditions. And then I also I read an article, a beautiful article that you wrote about artists such as George O'Keefe and, and Frida Kahlo, who used art to heal as well. Why do you think art has this connection in the brain? What do you think it is that promotes the healing? Like, what is that? There's a lot of research on art therapy that I think is interesting and on music therapy. And I've actually started learning to play the guitar because it helps your brain recategorize information in a new way. So there's something about music that I think is interesting because it helps to rewire the brain that I think that is useful. To me, I think art is healing for the brain, for my brain, because I think I always wanted to be an artist. I think that was trapped really deep inside me. And it wasn't until I sort of really stepped into this kind of like impulse first living and gave it a chance. And I think it was just like, I had so much emotion and thought bottled up into that, like inside of me that art started to give me a place to really explore. And I I think for my brain, I spend so much of my life writing and thinking and being in email the chance to think in a different way is really impactful, right? Like there is something about just sort of the freedom, like art is free for your brain if you're making art based on just what you're feeling, right? So art can have a lot of rules to it, right? Like it's like there, this is like Dutch style. This is abstract. This is conceptual. And there are all of these sort of heroes in those fields, right? And so sometimes I think you're trying to make art in the style that has been made before. And then it's really constricting, right? Like where it can be really constricting while you're learning that. Yes. For me, the most beautiful thing was like, just being like, I'm going to try and heal my brain with art, but I wasn't trying to make art to fit within the canon of artists. I was trying to make art because it was therapeutic for me. And so it was deeply selfish and deeply personal. And like, there is something about that that feels really good for your brain as well, right? Which is sort of like, I just wanted to paint what I wanted, how I wanted that sort of like freedom and the rebellion of that felt like giving my brain oxygen. I don't know how to really describe that, but 
when I'm painting, I feel my brain breathing in a different way. And like that feels like what the healing process is, is like, this is so not scientific, changing the breathing pattern of your brain. There is a lot of research, I think, about the the rhythm of your brain and sort of syncing the rhythm of your brain with the rhythm of your breathing that I'm not an expert on at all, but that I've read a little bit about. But painting changes, it gives my brain space. Well, I think they show that meditative states are healing, right? And a lot of this, as we're going through, we're going through numerous crises. So as we're taping this, I can hear sirens in the background because we're still going on with the protests. I'm in New York City. You know, and many of the suggestions, even from our governor Cuomo, was to meditate or to look into that. But it, it takes you into, there's different states, right? The ultimate is, I believe they call gamma. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> I won't. Right. But I think that's what it is. And for some, that really resonates when you're talking about art as being constrictive. I have a BFA from Parsons. Okay. Yeah. And I studied graphic design. I'm also a Virgo. So I kind of like that constriction, but it's hard as creativity. And it feels like maybe you, as a, I don't want to say a novice, but as someone unexperienced in painting, walked into it and just let yourself be. Yes, and calling me a novice is 100% appropriate, right? Like, um, I'm taking a still life painting class right now because I was like, I should try other things, maybe. And I'm completely reminded of, like, even though I've spent, I don't know, 700 hours painting or 1,000 hours or I don't even know. I could calculate the amount of hours painting probably more than that in the past few years, for the past year. I'm still very much a novice in the act of painting. But for me... The ability to have that sort of like rebellious, creative expression, it profoundly felt meditative. Like it felt so self-indulgent in a way, like the opposite of how I think many people who have been traditionally schooled in art, right? And what else was profoundly special is that I did it on my own, right? Like I didn't have a teacher. No one was critiquing my work. Like I got to make this thing just for me. and. It talks a lot about my mom and this, but my mom was like, I think you should share those things on Instagram. And I was so terrified because it was so my own special thing. And then it, but it was so wonderful when people were like, oh, I really love that. Or like, I want one, or can I hang one in my home? And so that sort of other thing came out of it too, which was like, when you are sort of rebelliously creative in your own personal expression and then other people like and appreciate that version of yourself, felt profoundly life-affirming, right? Like, oh, we live in a society in which so much of who we are and what we do is sort of constricted, I think, by how people view us or how people tell us we're supposed to live, that to be able to take and push all of that aside and then just to say here I am here's what I make and have people appreciate it it feels like you are so much more connected to society than you were when you were trying to be everything that society wanted you to be or I mean that's how I feel now do you think that you ever could have gotten to this place without having the tragedy of the accident and the brain injury no, I don't. I would have never done it. And my my best friend, she was interesting. She said, 
well, you said you wanted to take a painting class in April. So my accident happened in July and started painting in August. And I had forgotten that entirely. And so I think the thing about the concussion that was so interesting is it made me really intuitive. And for the first three months, I had no impulse control, right? Like if I wanted something, I just bought it, which was bad for my credit card and bad for my lots of things. Everything's ever food. I wouldn't have done it. And I think, you know, you and I met because I started making these public floral art pieces, which are, you know, divorced from painting. They're connected, but they're really separate in my life. And I think it's so interesting because the concussion sort of led me into painting. I still have this traumatic brain injury. So I still have mostly just constant headaches. So the floral art pieces were in response to COVID. But in December, I was like, I kind of would like to get into more like a structural form of art. But I was like, Christina, you paint, like just focus on painting. Like you don't need to do those other things. And then we had this quarantine moment. I ended up breaking up with someone and feeling really heartbroken and through my own heartbreak, like being better able to address with, like to connect with the moment. And that led me into these floral pieces. And so I think if you want to see trauma as a moment of opportunity, there is enormous opportunity in it, right? And like, that's really powerful. Like I would have never, 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 never made public art. Like, ever. Like we would know, I would never be here making public art period. If it wasn't for the concussion, which allowed me to explore art. And then this pandemic moment, which I felt so compelled to do something, but I had had these previous six months of of making enough art to feel just comfortable enough to go at six in the morning and like put out a piece in public and then very, very quickly walk away. Right. So like, (laughs) I think all of these moments have been, or even now I was just asked recently to do something for, um, there was a protest moment in Washington Square Park and someone asked me to bring a bunch of flowers to that protest moment. Now we have like protest as trauma, right? This sort of expressed trauma as society, but that also is like deeply traumatic. I'm also in New York, right? For people living in the city, I think it's like very much in our homes and our city and the air. And that sort of allowed this, other expression which puts me where I feel really like drawn into protest art which a year ago if you had told me I would be someone who would be like involved in the exploration of and like making protest art I would have just laughed at you because it's so far away from where I was from having made these, what felt like protest art for me about COVID actually, these like hearts that I had been making around the city felt like a, my way of just sort of poking at people a little bit to say like, we need to do things to memorialize and recognize these people who have died. Because my big fear in that is there's this idea around disenfranchised grief, which is like when we put off grief, it ends up being much more impactful on society over a long period of time than when we're able to mourn in the moment. So that happens a lot with soldiers who like go home and then all of a sudden all of the horrors of war that they haven't had the ability to process, they have to process at home. And so I'm really, was really in sort of this like grief and heartbreak moment when I was making these pieces and, and saw the protest and felt the very real rage and anger, right? I have also as a person been on like a lot of personal journey in my life. And 
know deeply that rage and anger are things we experience predominantly because we're heartbroken, right? And so that's what I feel when I go to these protest moments is I feel, I feel deep heartbreak in America. We are like heartbroken that we have failed. Right. And so I feel, and I am working on a book on this actually at the moment, that's about what we need in America is like, we need a moment of moral reckoning, right? Like we have built systems and structures that I'm not sure actually are the system and structures that reflect the beliefs that we really have. Or if they are, then we need to sort of become kind of crystal clear on the fact that like, we believe the reason that we're human is, is for this really capitalist economy and that why we're human is to make a bunch of money. And like, that's what we're here for. And if we believe the answer to why we're human is something else, we need to create different systems. And I think to create those different systems, what we really need to start with is a true national dialogue, right? Like, and so when I look at the protest moments, what's hard for me And it's not about me, but what is hard for me is that it's not a situation that is conducive to conversation, right? It's a situation in which we're having a conversation and working for change. But I even wish those protest moments were more, that there were more opportunities to sort of share our grief. And so I think the protest organizer who organized this request for flowers, I think he understood something really fundamental about changing slightly the feeling of the moment. And a few women reached out to me, women of color who I don't know based on the protest and said, I just want there to be a little more hope. Right. And I think that's a thing that flowers can do in a moment like this, which is allow for sort of that underlying sense of pain and heartbreak to be expressed as grief because flowers are a grief mechanism, right? Like they're something that we give to people when someone has died, they are historically something that brings sort of an immediate sense of joy. And so I think there's this weird tension between like, yes, we should be very angry, right? Like it's an, it's an angry moment. Like the system has, was built to do exactly what it's doing, which is like oppress people, right? Like this is the system we built. There's a ton of oppression in it and no one can seem to fix it. So that makes me angry and rageful and should make everyone angry and rageful. And we're all deeply guilty for not having fixed the system. What I love about the protests, though, is seeing how many people care. Yeah. And like that makes me deeply hopeful because that starts to heal the heartbreak. Because I think a large part of the heartbreak is thinking, no one sees me, no one cares what I'm saying. And so the reason I go to the protests is because it's important to me to protect the ability of people to express their trauma. And that helps us heal. And once we can sort of scream and be ragey and angry, then I think we can move to a more cathartic moment. But I think we need to have this intersection of like rage and hope and possibility. And so ways to visualize that soup, I think is, is I don't have the answer to it at all. I have no idea how to visualize it. I don't think flowers are the only solution. I do think when you do something like integrate flowers into that moment, it visually just like changes your perception of it. Like for people who are scared of the protests, seeing a bunch of people holding flowers instead of holding signs that say defund the cops or 
whatever the signs say, it makes people think, oh, I can, I can have a conversation with that person, right? Like they are here to converse. And that I also think is important for all protests at all times. One question I ask everyone at the end of the show is what your why is. So what makes you get up in the morning and think about like what has you continue to go and and not give up on all this and to do the hard work and to continue go out and make your art and do your public art what what is it when you get up in the morning what's your why because i love this moment i love humanity and i love this world and i think we can do it better i deeply think that if we have the right sort of focused attention that nothing is impossible. And um, even in our darkest possible moments in history, so I studied genocide, so I like really looked at our darkest, darkest moments in history. There's hope and love. Like people fell in love in concentration camps. Like that's amazing, right? And like flowers burst through concrete sidewalks. Talk about tenacity, right? Like the world is every time you try and break it down, good people rise to the top. And so how do I be a good moral, ethical human? And how do I encourage other people to live like that? And how do I make things and put things in front of people, ask them to contemplate their own goodness? That to me is a really powerful way of being alive. And an important worthwhile way to be alive. And I am working on this book, this idea of why are we human? And I think that's what it comes down to me is like, we're human because we can make it better. And like, that's our job. And if we can do that, then like, gosh, what a great moment to be alive. Wonderful. Thank you. That's beautiful. And tell me, Christina, how can people find out more about your work and, and find you? Yeah, so uh, you can go to my website. I'm going to spell it out, L-O-H-M-Studio.com. Or on Instagram, I'm at Christina M. Libby. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christina. And thank you for being the change. Thanks for all the good questions. (laughs) You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.